Gospels, turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 15. Matthew 16, 15 through 18. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Lord, you know the needs of your people in this place at this moment. And so I ask that you would uh, fill me afresh with your spirit, that you would lead and guide me during this preaching, and God, that it would go forth and bear fruit for your glory. God, I ask that during this time your name would be exalted and that uh, hearts would be challenged and changed. God, do this for your glory, for your purposes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since the start of this year, we have been going through a book of the Bible every week. And one of the things that that we are learning is that the Bible is not a collection of stories. But rather, it is one story with one theme, the entire Bible. And that theme is God's plan of redemption, the story of redemption. And from Genesis all the way to Revelation there's one main character, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, from beginning to end. And that's why in our goal for this series called Route 66 is that we're going to focus on the story of redemption, the gospel, and we would find Christ in every book. Well, it's pretty easy to find Christ in the gospels, all right? Um, But what we find is that there are different each gospel has a different focus, and we're going to look at those different uh, each week, the different or the specific focus for that particular gospel. And this week, the main point is this, and we really need to hear this because of who we are and where we live uh, in America, is the fact that Jesus is the eternal King, and we are His chosen subjects and friends. That's it. It's pretty simple, but it's so important to get that because in America we don't live like we have a King. And then we'll get to that. Uh, what we do find is this, is that we're now transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament, about 400 years in between. And I am amazed at God, again, because, you know, when we go through the Old Testament, it's hard to find Christ, and it's not hard, but, you know, you look for it, and it's, he's, he's hidden, and the gospel is woven in there. It's that, that thread throughout the Old Testament. And we get to the New Testament, and we just see God's hand in how the books are arranged, okay? It's not just that the Word of God is God-breathed, all of it. But when I look at this, I see the amazing hand of God even in the arrangement of the way that the Word of God is put together. And we have this transition. We're going from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And Matthew is such a perfect gospel for the first gospel in the New Testament because 
it is written specifically to the Jews. Okay? Each of the Gospels is, is, has a targeted group of people. And then as you understand the target group, it, you, the rest of that Gospel makes more sense to you. And you're going to find that out today. And what we see is that Matthew was written to the Jews, and it, its purpose, Matthew's purpose behind it, the Lord's purpose behind it, is that the Jews would see that Jesus is their promised Messiah. He is their King. That was his purpose. Take a look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's saying, there's a purpose here behind this gospel. And it's to tell the Jews their king has come. When you look and you start reading through Matthew, and I want to encourage you each week, sometimes I usually say, at least for the gospels, I'll say, all right, read the book before we preach. This week I'm going to say, if you haven't read the book of Matthew, read it this week. And start looking and seeing all the things that are in there <clears throat> that have always been there, but maybe you missed. For example, um, Matthew quotes more Old Testament than any other gospel writer. He quotes Old Testament 60 times, six zero times in 28 chapters. So he's quoting the Old Testament twice per chapter. And what he does is, you'll notice also in Matthew that he'll talk about Jewish customs or Jewish uh, celebrations, and he won't explain them. He just says, it was the Passover, it was this. And he doesn't explain them because who's his target audience? Well, it's the Jewish people. And the Jewish people understood what he was saying. Oh, it's the Passover, yeah, I get that. And so he's not explaining anything. He's just making a comment, and he's moving on. And uh, what we see is, is that because it's who the target audience is. Now, Matthew, scholars believe, was written by Matthew somewhere around 55 to 65 A.D. And I think, I personally think it's the most widely read book in the Bible. And here's why. Generally speaking... When you hand a Bible to someone, and I want to encourage you, if you have friends, one of the best ways to, to share your faith is to hand them a Bible. Let them start reading. Okay? Well, when people get a Bible, they generally speaking open it up to the first page because they think it's like any other book. And they don't realize it's 66 separate books. So they start in the beginning, and they make it through Genesis, and they sometimes get through Exodus, and then they hit Leviticus, and it's done. Right? So what a lot of people do is they'll encourage people to start with the New Testament. You know, they'll hand them a Bible and they'll say, hey, I want you to start with the New Testament because that's when Jesus was here. And they'll take that page, and this is a cheat that I do when you hand out a Bible, fold it over. I use the, the Gospel of John, and I'll explain that in a couple of weeks. But you just fold the tab over. So automatically what happens is they put the Bible down, and they, oh, that's folded, and they open it up, and right there they are. So I think Matthew is the most read book in the Bible because we have a tendency to turn people to the New Testament and they start reading there. Um, Matthew, his name means the gift of God. But as you read, he was one of the 12 disciples, and as you read in the other Gospels, you'll notice there's another guy. His name is Levi. Well, Levi was probably Matthew's name before his conversion. So Levi, Matthew, same guy. He was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. And he was a publican. You find out that's a big fancy name, or it's a name that they used back then. 
for a tax collector. That's what Matthew did for a living. He was a Jewish man who collected taxes for the Roman government. So that means two things. He was probably fairly wealthy and people didn't like the man. People didn't like the man. His own people didn't like him and Jesus could relate to that, couldn't he? His own people say, you work, you're working for the government that is oppressing us and you're collecting taxes. So Matthew was not one of those well-loved people by his own people. And uh, so that's kind of the, the foundation for who Matthew was, what he did. And um, when we look at this gospel, his focus is to, to communicate to the Jews that their promised king in the Old Testament, the Messiah, had come. His name was Jesus. And with the king came his kingdom. And that is a word that when you read through Matthew, you cannot get past finding that word over and over and over again. The word kingdom is used 55 times in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's a general outline of that Gospel. Uh, First of all, chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is connected to the Old Testament. This is where his genealogy is listed, where the visit from the Magi comes in. He's connecting. He's making that point that this is who uh, the Old Testament Scriptures pointed to. Then in chapters 3 through 7, it's announcing of of God's kingdom. The kingdom is here. And... Within that time, we can see chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, which is how to live in God's upside-down kingdom, John's famous message quite a few years ago. But Sermon on the Mount. You know what's interesting, which I didn't know until this week, is that a publican was required to take shorthand, which I didn't know. So we think shorthand is something new. It's not. They were required to take shorthand. So some scholars, and it seems like there's a lot of evidence there, some scholars believe that the Sermon on the Mount could almost be a word-for-word sermon that Jesus had to the people because Matthew recorded it and he knew shorthand. So did he sit there? Was he recording it? We don't know. But I thought that is an interesting perspective because it's one of the largest discourses Jesus makes, and it is as far as teaching uh, people just about the kingdom. So we go on, chapters 8 through 10, works of the kingdom. This is where we see the sick being healed, uh, demon-possessed people being set free. Uh, Also in chapters 11 through 13, the nature of the kingdom, people's response to Jesus and his message. Some was positive, people received it. Some, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, didn't. So that's in those chapters, chapters 14 through 18, the authority of the kingdom. Chapters 19 through 20, the upside-down nature of of Jesus' kingdom. Chapters 21 through 25, clash of two kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom and Israel's leaders, what they were expecting and what they had said. Then finally in 26 through 27, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of the suffering Messiah. That is Jesus' uh, crucifixion, resurrection. And then chapter 28, Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples. Um, That's a general outline. And it's, it's interesting because Jesus, when we look at Matthew, Jesus declared king at his birth reverently, but in the end, he is mockingly declared the king of the Jews, isn't he? With that sign, here's the king of the Jews. And so we see this throughout. In, it is only in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus' genealogy is traced all the way back to King David, which a king isn't voted for, 
Now don't, I, I know Andrew LeClaire is thinking of <laughs> Monty Python, right? <laughs> we didn't vote for you. Anyway, <laughs> um, a king isn't voted on. And so they bring it all the way down to the lineage of King David. And he said, he is king. He is of the line of David. And it goes even farther back. It goes to the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. And so you see this lineage being traced for a purpose for the Jewish people. That this is the king. This is the promised king that was coming. He is in the line of David. He is in the line of Abraham. He is the coming king. And what we see is that uh, this genealogy is laid out. As I said, he's born a king. And then what we find is that as we look in Matthew, and as you read through it this week, you'll see that in Matthew, Jesus is referred to this as the son of David. Very important. Why his focus is the Jewish people and that Jesus is their king. And so he calls him son of David ten times in the Gospel of Matthew, and in the other three Gospels combined, only six times. Why? Because of his target audience. He's saying, you need to know who this is. And the other thing is, is that Jesus explains, and the term I'm going to use is important, kingdom of heaven, 32 times. He's explaining the kingdom of heaven. And if you take all the other Gospels combined, the times where the phrase kingdom of heaven is used is a total of zero. It's never used in, that, in the other Gospels, except in this one. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is explaining it, and Matthew is choosing to use those words by the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit, but because he's, of who he's communicating to and what he's trying to say. We see that in this, as Jesus is explaining the kingdom of heaven, he's explaining that this kingdom is a universal kingdom, it's an invisible kingdom, and it's an eternal kingdom. It is not a reference to a place. Take a look. The best I, I like these, these verses better to, to use that as an example in Luke chapter 17, 20 through 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You're looking for a place. But the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You know why the kingdom of God is in the midst of them? Because where the king is, there is his kingdom. That's biblical thinking. The kingdom of God is here today. Christ dwells in the hearts of all believers. And so we look at that and, we, and Jesus is explaining what this kingdom is about. And they don't get it. And the reason they don't is because the Jews were expecting this conquering king. He was going to come in and you know the Romans were oppressing him and he was going to come in and he was going to take them out. He was going to liberate them from those who had them under the, their thumb. He was going to set them free from all this uh, Roman government. He was going to unite the people. He was going to be this powerful king. Riding in on a white horse with a sword. And instead he comes on a colt. Humble. So their expectation was for the king to come and to rule and to reign and to set them free. But Jesus was not the king of their expectations. 
But instead, he was what we would describe as the suffering servant in Isaiah. He came and he came to serve people. He came because we needed desperately a Savior. And this king came from heaven. He put on a cloak of flesh, fully God, fully man. And he came. And that's why when we look at Matthew in particular, we see that Matthew is the story of a great king who shed his royal robe and he put on the cloak of a commoner like us. Why? So that commoners could be royal children of the Most High. And that's sweet. The king, the glorious king, took off his robe of royalty and put on the cloak of a commoner, fully God, fully man. Take a look at God's word. We see it reflected a little bit here in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You're chosen. You were chosen by the king. I said this in the first service. You know, it's not like there's two teams and there's nine people that they're picking from and you're the last one. Well, I guess they're on my team. That's not how God did it. He chose you with joy. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. You were adopted by the king through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You were adopted. You were chosen by God and adopted. And you are a child of the King because of what Christ has done for us. And so Matthew lays out this, this beautiful gospel of this King coming, the Jewish Messiah. And Matthew challenges us with one of the most critical and personal questions facing every human being. And it's this. Is Jesus king of your life? It's worded a little differently in what we, the verses we chose today. Take a look. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? They said, you know, some believe he's this, some believe he's that, etc., etc., etc. And Jesus just point blanks his disciples and said, but who do you say I am? And that's a great question for us. Who do you say he is? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Do you realize nothing has changed about that right there? You know why you believe that Jesus is the Savior? Flesh and blood. It wasn't because you were so smart and you figured it out. It was because, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it. That's why. The same thing that happened to Peter happened to you. You can understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that that you were sinners separated from God and there was no hope for you. You had sinned and broken God's law. And that God in His grace sent His Son and Jesus would live that perfect sinless life that we were required to live that we couldn't. Then He went to the cross and was brutally punished for our sin, for the, the sin of all believers. And then He rose on the third day 
And if by God's grace, which is something we get that we don't deserve, it's free, through faith, believing what we do not see, in Christ alone, then we're saved. And this great exchange happens. The life that we were required to live that we couldn't, Christ lived it for for us, and his righteousness, his perfect life, was imputed to us. It's considered as if it was ours, as if we lived it. And our sin, which was not Christ, he was punished for. And the great exchange happened. And because you believe that, it's because of the work of God. The Father opened up your heart. You can understand this now. And you believe because of the grace of God. And that's what we see here. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And there are so many people that don't understand that little phrase right there. And upon this rock I will build my church. They think it means Peter. It's not about Peter. It's not about Peter. He's talking about the confession of Peter. That Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the one. And soon Jesus would die for Peter's sins and be raised three days later. So he's not saying, Peter, and on you, this rock, I will build my church. He's saying, no, it's this confession. It's this truth. It's not about your works being the good works outweighing the bad, and if they do, then you get to go to heaven. He's saying it's not about that. It's about grace. This rock that it's built on, it's gospel. It's the story of the redemption of Jesus Christ coming and saving us from our sin. That's the rock. And you know, it's interesting too because in Matthew is the only time in the Gospels where the word church is used. He's saying this is it. It's this truth that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the rock that my church will be built on and nothing, nothing, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why? Because we're saved by God's grace. And no one can take that from us. The enemy can't steal it. So he's not saying Peter is the foundation of the church. He's saying the gospel is the foundation of the church. And nothing will prevail against it. And then we see in Matthew chapter 4, 17, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Saying that's how you, where it all starts. You repent. You acknowledge all these truths of the gospel that we're sinners separated by God's grace or separated by our sin. And God's grace comes in and makes a way. And so Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Am I your king? You know, it's more than just an outward bowing down and kneeling. I mean, sometimes we do that in worship, and I want to encourage you to do that. If you feel led to do that, bow down, kneel, raise your hands. If you want to do that, you can. But what happens is it's more than that. It's talking about submitting our wills and our desires to King Jesus. It's about daily living in submission to the kingship of Christ in our lives. And as Americans, we don't like that. We like to pride ourselves and we're rebellious. We stand up against the the authority. You know, giving willingly and joyfully obedience and honor and reverence to a king is absolutely foreign to us. We don't get it. We're the 
Nobody tells me what to do. I got news for you. Yeah, there is somebody who tells you what to do, and his name is Jesus. And a term that we better understand than king is this. He's your boss, right? He's your boss. But we don't live under a king, so we don't get it. We don't understand this part of Jesus' office to us because we live in a country where we vote people in. And the king is sovereign. And we just struggle with this. We want a king that fulfills our desires to do what we want him to do. Kind of like a puppet on a string. I hate to say it, but that's kind of the way many Christians treat their king, Jesus. It's, I want you to do what I want you to do when I want you to do it. You know, And I want my life to be comfortable, and I want this, and I want that. And Here's my goals, Jesus. Help me accomplish all my goals in life. And it's all about me-centeredness. And Jesus is not a king. He is a, our puppet. That's difficult because this is who we are as people anyway. We're sinners. It's all about us. And then we add on the American mentality of, you know, nobody's going to tell me what to do and I don't, didn't vote for you. You're not my king. And the truth of the matter is he is our king. And by God's grace, we must cast down this throne of our own pride and self-will and ego. About It's all about me. It's not. It's about King Jesus. And that by God's grace, you can replace it with the glorious throne of Jesus Christ. Which is so contrary to our flesh. So, so contrary. And as King... Jesus desires and deserves primacy and authority over all aspects of our lives. You know why? Because Jesus is the king and we are his subjects. He's, he's the king, not us. Take a look at God's word again. Uh, Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It starts out with a relationship with God, loving the Lord your God. How do you submit to the king? You love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's where it all starts. It goes on, Matthew chapter 6, 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He was talking about you worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to clothe yourselves with. And he goes, listen, that's not the focus here. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added. I'll take care of you. You know, we live in a time right now where we worry about those things, don't we? How are we going to make it? I read an, uh, a statistic today, or not today, during this week, that said that since the start of this administration, day one till now, the average American family per month has an increase due to inflation of expenses of $809 per month. That's gas, food, whatever. 809 per month. And there are people, more and more people are struggling with how am I going to make ends meet? Where am I going to find my food? I'm not going to make my car payment because i got to eat. And that's why we're seeing car payments. So many uh, car payments are starting to default in banks. People are in over their heads. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Listen, I know these things are important, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Trust me. 
Trust me. Trust me. And it goes on. Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Daily follow him. Take up your cross. That's an uncomfortable thing, isn't it? Again, he's king. And then finally, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You know, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing all the right things at least according to their religion. Yeah, they were doing all the, the, the stuff they were offering, making offerings when they needed to. And they'd go to church in, in, in that perspective from our view. They were doing the religious things, and, and it wasn't about that. He's saying, listen, you know, you can go to church every Sunday, and if you live like the devil during the week, is there really a faith there? It doesn't honor God to, to sacrifice, but obey, walk in obedience. Saying that's what the focus is. It's not about religious activities. Religious activities don't do anything if they're not motivated by a heart of passion and desire for Jesus Christ. You know, no part of a Christian's life should be lived apart from Jesus' rule. And again, that's so hard to hear because we're Americans and we struggle against this. It's all about me. This is my stuff. It's my time. It's my treasures. This is my talents. And I'll use them the way I want to. Yet if we believe that Jesus is our king, they're not ours. They're his. It's his time. It's his treasure. We read this week in uh, my group of guys that gets together uh, for discipleship, and we were just talking about how it says in in Proverbs that there's a man who withholds, talking about his finances, and and is always wanting. You know, we're not going to give. We're not going to. We're going to hold everything, and they're always wanting. And then there's a guy who gives generously and is, is, it has an abundance. And that's the upside down kingdom that is talking about our treasures and our talent and our time. You know, we think they're ours to do with as we will, and all God has to do is ask. He's already asked. He said, "Deny yourself." This is so contrary to the world that we live in. That's why God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. From the world's perspective, it makes no sense. And our time and our treasure and our talents should be focused on His desires. It says, remember in Corinthians where it says, hey, do all for the glory of God. That's what our heart should be. Do all for the glory of God. That should be our greatest desire. When you get up in the morning before your feet hit the ground, just, you know, Lord, you have you know everything that's going to go on today. And God, would you empower me to live for your glory in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions, in everything, God. Today I want to glorify you. My struggle is with my thoughts. You know, all of a sudden you think evil thoughts about someone and you kind of let it run. And you go, this doesn't glorify God. But to get up in the morning before your feet hit the floor and say, God, you're my king. You're my Jesus. And today I want to glorify you in all things. So please, God, work in me. Because as I said, to submit to King Jesus, you must know him first. And then you've got to know his decrees. What is he saying? So you've got to know the word of God. You have to know Him personally. You've got to know the Word of God. 
Because he's given you decrees. And, and you must obey him by the power of the king who indwells all believers. He will enable you to live in a way that is obedient to all his commands. And I'm going to go a little old school. We don't usually do this here, but I know some people want us to do this more. From the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. Question number 26. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, choosing us, calling us to himself, granting salvation, in ruling and defending us, ruling over our daily lives and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies, our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. See, we can have victory over sin. We can walk in holiness. We can walk in obedience to the king because the king indwells us. His spirit indwells us. And so we can walk in victory. We can walk in obedience because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And that's part of Jesus' ministry as our king is he empowers us to obey him, to walk in obedience to him. So the glory always goes back to Christ and all the work that he is doing in us. And what we see is that King Jesus sovereignly rules over everything. Everything he rules over. He rules over the visible and the invisible. He rules over the material and the immaterial. King Jesus sovereignly rules over all creation. He rules over all beings, Satan and the demons. He rules over them all. He rules over all peoples and kings. He rules over all nations. He rules over the Middle East right now. Don't kid yourself. He is sovereign and He's doing a work to glorify His name. And it doesn't make sense to us, but it doesn't have to make sense to us. We talked about that last week. Jesus is sovereign over the nations, over the the people that are in charge of the nations. Jesus is ruling and is reigning. He rules over all times, all places, all peoples, all cultures, and all kingdoms. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus. And King Jesus commands his chosen subjects to go and tell the world its king has come and salvation is available to all who would repent. He says, go. This is a command I made. Go. So that they too, like you, can become citizens of the greatest kingdom ever. If you know Jesus right now, you are part of the greatest kingdom ever. And all the promises that are there are yours in Christ. Take a look at this command. Again, we don't like commands. It is a command. Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 19. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is the King of kings, the Lord of glory, the great I Am, the Alpha and the Omega. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There's a command. Tell them their King has come with salvation in His hand. Tell them. They don't know. They're lost. They're just as afraid as you are. They can't make ends meet either. They don't know where they're going to go. Where's their hope? 
Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. There you go. You're adopted by the king. If you're a believer today, that's what it says about you. You're a king's kid. That's what you are. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim. There's part of that command, part of that directive. You're a royal priesthood. That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To tell people of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That guess what? You can't be good enough. You've got to have the bad news first. You can't be good enough. But Christ made a way. And then in John 15, 15 through 16, and here's just, it, this is amazing when you really think about it. You've got to slow down, stop and think. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, and for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You, do not, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. He calls you friend. This king of the universe. That's my king. And he calls you his friend. And he says, now go and tell people about a hope that they have in me. That's part of the command of the king to his servants, his subjects, us. So let's, by God's grace and mercy, do that. Go tell people about this glorious king as things are getting crazier and crazier that their hope is found in a living Messiah who was crucified 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead, and is now seated in the place of authority. And he's got a plan. And it's a plan for good and not for evil. This king, our king, let us by God's grace walk in obedience to him in all ways, in all areas of our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe. We, as, we just confess as Americans, we don't get this whole king stuff. And we just have this rebellious spirit naturally from the flesh, but also as Americans, it just seems to add another layer to it, God. And I ask that you would help us to truly acknowledge that you are our king. Lord, that we are your subjects. And that by your grace and your mercy, you would direct and, and make commandments to, commands to us, Lord, that would be for our good and your glory. But we need you to empower us to walk in them. So I pray now, Lord, that you would do a miracle in hearts. You're the only one that can. Turn our hearts towards you, Lord, and do it in such a way that your name would be glorified because we know that's where our joy is going to be, be found. And I pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.